Welcome back to Conversations with the Leaky Cauldron, episode 24, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, chapters 14 through 19. And back with me are my esteemed colleagues, Miss Sarah Miller, Mr. Wesley Shantz. Welcome back, you all, in the midst of this beautiful summer. Great to be back. Greetings. And so in the pre-show, as usual, we, uh, we left some gems, and hopefully we don't leave too many gems behind in trying to reiterate what it was we uh, once talked about. Perhaps we, uh, the flames we once uh, bellowed can lend us strength here again, uh, lend us their flames, and illuminate this conversation. But um, I had asked for something of a synopsis or a summary of this reading from Wes, because it's been about a week since I did the reading. And then, Sarah, you also had touched on several themes that you thought we should we should hit. Um, Wes had wanted to talk about Matilda Bagshot a bit. You had mentioned the connection between Dumbledore and Harry and whether that's wavering and how that relates to his wand and the fact that it's broken and when it specifically is broken. Um, and so uh, I think this is going to be a very good conversation. And so I guess I'll kick it to you first, Wes. You, you'd started um, sort of summarizing this reading for us during the pre-show and I'd appreciate if you could sort of uh, work your magic again. I will make an effort. Uh, I think, well, so just kind of going off of the, the chapter titles is, is kind of where I was headed. So we start with a thief. It turns out there's a, a cheerful looking young man who has stolen something from Gregorovich, the, the wand maker. Um, we learn towards the end of this reading who that cheerful looking young man is, but at first it's very mysterious and we're very curious about it. Uh, we learned that the actual Gryffindor sword is missing. Um, we don't know quite what happened to that, but a, a very convincing fake has been put in its place. Uh, we learned this very much by chance um, from some goblins who are really good at telling when things are real and when they're fake, which is kind of interesting. Um, but we, 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 we eavesdrop and we are not you know, seen um, but we also learned that it was Ginny who was trying to steal the sword, um, which is kind of cool. Um, that actually leads to some serious conflict, of course, as uh, uh, Ron is feeling very put upon and he storms off. Uh, that sort of defines this kind of chapter arc is, is that absence of Ron that, that subsequently comes over our party here. And um, we're also very excited, right? Because we now sort of feel like we have a lead maybe on the sword because Godric, Godric Gryffindor, Godric's hollow. So it's time to finally, after 500 pages, no, 311 pages, we finally go to Godric's hollow uh, as Harry wanted to do all along. Uh, so there we have some very adventurous things happen, which I think we could probably talk about in a little more detail. Um, there's some very interesting stuff on the, the uh, tombstones there. And um, we meet Batilda Bogshot, or what's left of her, and we escape by the skin of our teeth, but not without breaking our wand, and then Silver Doe, right? Um, there's stuff about uh, Bagshot's relationship with Grindelwald, uh, Dumbledore's role in, in all of that, um, and uh, there's a mysterious apparition, looks kind of like a Patronus maybe, and it leads us to the, the sword, and Ron reappears. It's all good. That was good. Um, and then they break a horcrux with the sword. Yeah, that's like the last three pages. Darn, I forgot that. That's pretty important, though. Yeah, good call. Ron breaks it, yeah? So yeah, it's that's so pretty... interesting, just like that miasma of, and I, I want to kick it to you right after this, Sarah, because you had brought up several important themes and moments that I think will illuminate this, um, the dark wood of this chap these chapters very nicely. Um, but it's interesting, the uh, sort of connection between um, representation and reality, uh, falsity and truth, and, um, uh, and connecting that also with um, what is lost amongst these people. I, these... Uh, the wand being broken, I've, I've maintained that that's sort of a symbol of thought or the ability to think of each wizard in a particular sort of slant. Um, and that's where the real magic comes from. And it's sort of embodied in the same way your mind is embodied. Um, like you, you know, your mind is in your body, just like the magic is in the wand. And uh, there's some connection between it. But the sword is also a traditional symbol of the logos. That thing which cuts things apart, cuts them into their proper proportions. Sort of the Dante geometric uh, Jupiterian or Jupiterian uh, point of view. 
um, the thing that orders the cosmos. Um, and so there's sort of a disordering that seems to be happening here, a disorganization we're feeling in the plan, a disenfranchisement of um, Harry and society, and of even within the friend group, Ron sort of leaving here. And there even being, sort, and so the fake sort of Gryffindor sort of seems to relate to me in the same way that um, Harry's uh, sword or wand breaking sort of, it's, it's as if there's uh, trouble distinguishing reality from, from fiction or, or that uh, things are getting muddled. Things are not as clear as they once were. Um, that's just something I, I, I feel like I'm starting to pick up on there. I know that, that itself might be a bit muddy and need uh, the deluminator to help it out. But also Sarah, uh, I don't know if you want to comment on that. That's one of those weird Schmidt things I say, but, um, <laughs> but also <laughs> the themes and uh, the quotes that, um, or sorry, the themes and the moments that you had mentioned in the pre-show I thought would be uh, very excellent to consider as well. Yeah. I, I don't totally know where to start, but maybe it's best to start at the end um, with the, the, like the destruction of the Horcrux. I think it's interesting that um, Harry in that he, he's in this moment where he does not, like you said, he doesn't have his, his wand um, and he's using Hermione's. It doesn't really seem to obey him. Um, and if, if the wand is sort of the manifestation of, of a, a, a wizard's capacity for reason, you know, he's sort of without a rudder in that moment, right? That he, yeah. um, like without, without his wand, particularly without the wand that saved him, he keeps, he keeps referring to the, the magic that the wand did that, he, that, and Hermione um, says like, you keep, you know, you keep saying that your wand did this thing, but like it was actually you. And he, he repudiates that. It happened at the beginning of the seventh book. And then obviously at the end of the fourth in the, in the graveyard, but without his wand, I think it's really interesting that in the chapter where he sees the silver dough, he knows instinctively that the dough is meant for him and not for him and Hermione. Mm. Right. There's a, a passage where um, uh, I think it is um, maybe page 366 or so where he thinks about shouting for her, but he knew he would have staked his life on it, that she had come for him and him alone. And then again, after he realizes that Ron and before he even recognizes wrong, he knows instinctively that he needs to t um, <clears throat> dive into the pond to get the thing, right? That he knows that that's why the dough was sent for him. And then he knows also that Ron has to be the one to, um, to break it. He says, I just know that you have, it has, um, it has to be you. Um, and um, uh, I, I think that I'm, I'm curious what you make of the fact that he knows things without his wand. You know what I mean? Like he seems to know things really instinctively and he knows, um, he knows how to even open the lock, the locket, like not before, but in this moment, in this moment of like, adrenaline pumping this moment of like courage and intensity a reunion uh, a moment of uncertainty certainly a moment where he feels probably fairly stripped not just of his clothes but also of his wand he knows i'm going to ask it to open using parcel tongue the answer came so readily to his lips that he thought he had always known it deep down right like how does he know things when his wand is broken yeah, that's excellent. I see just immediately two two possible interpretations of religious way of going about it, sort of a faith versus reason um, perspective. This is sort of revelation coming to him in the wake of the logos being gone or the intellect being gone. That the, these are things that he can know in, in a way that goes beyond reason. And it also sort of reminds me of 
the, the end of the first Star Wars movie. I guess it's episode four now where Obi-Wan Kenobi's spirit is talking to Luke while he's attacking the Death Star. And he tells him to put away the, um, the uh, targeting community or computer, the reason, right? The intellect there or the symbol for it and to use his own intuition. I can also see sort of a Jungian perspective on that. He, he put forth the theory of the four types of um, um, senses, uh, thinking, feeling, sensing, and intuiting. And this strikes me as this sort of intuitional, irrational uh, perceiving um, in, in that way of thinking. But uh, Wes, what did you think about that as well? I, I mean, I think it's similar to what happened in the second book, I want to say also, and I don't recall now if we talked about it at the time. I think we must have, right? That you know, in these kind of critical conflicts, the, there's a, there's an awful lot that sort of falls into place very quickly. And I think, from what I recall of this book, it's it's even more dramatic here, where we have this like long, uh, drawn out, you know, story. Um, of searching for answers, and then they all seem to sort of fall into place very quickly at the end. And so I want to say mm. that there's there's a lot to what you say about the, the intuition. I think it's also a technique of, you know, like storytelling and suspense, and then this mm. kind of payoff, almost like, you know, getting a riddle or something. It's It's a very intense feeling of like things finally sort of making sense, right? That's, that's very pleasurable. Yeah the reader to get to have like kind of like a the end of a detective novel or something so it's interesting to me that this happens in little pieces more so in this book because it's so long and sort of episodic within itself and maybe we should count mm. how many episodes there are because i would venture to guess there's going to be seven of these kinds of episodes but this one mm. you know has a has a kind of resolution here that's like the end of one of the other books where you know we're fighting well, I don't know. We we fought a snake and we got away from it, and now we uh, are, are breaking a Horcrux. You know, um, sort of just by the skin of our teeth uh, as it happens, mm -hmm. and uh, and it's teamwork too, right? It's like Ron being there. I think sort of just that um, maybe was was a kind of block for Harry, like not having his friend there. That would be a really draining thing, and he knows it's sort of his fault, possibly for just not being a great leader or, or whatever. But but anyhow, the friends are reunited here. And so this this thing sort of works uh, where it wasn't working before. Yeah, and that makes me love, really, yeah, go on, Sarah. I, just, I love the idea of Harry as like learning to be a leader in this, in this um, book, like um, literally learning from nothing, learning from scratch, um, how, the leaders don't have to have all of the answers, but leaders have to be able to draw out the best versions of the people that they lead. Like that's what a good leader does. A good leader doesn't necessarily do everything, but enable or empower the people that they lead to be the best version of themselves. I mean, that, that, that seems to track with what happens in chapter 19 um, because he's he's basically coaching ron through destroying the thing right um and then i love it maybe it's at the end of this chapter or maybe it's at the beginning of the next chapter which we didn't read but i did listen to where he like basically ron summarizes what happens and uh he reaches the conclusion like wow it doesn't seem like that big of a deal now that you say it out say it like that and Harry basically says, like, yeah, I've been trying to tell you all along. It's not, when you summarize events, it's not the same as being in them. And, like, I don't know, uh, drawing his friend to this moment where he, um, he's on the other side of this thing that he's n never seen. He's in a position he's never been in. Um, and, like, drawing him through it, coaching him through it, I think is, is interesting. Well, I'm sorry, Alex, I cut you off. What were you going to say? Well, I, you, you both were just very much obliquely talking, well, actually directly talking about the locket, which makes me want to think about how it manifested itself to Ron in conjunction with the fact yes. that Ron was the one who had to get and open the locket in conjunction with the fact 
that this seems to be showing, at least symbolically, that Ron has a purpose, that Ron is supposed to be there, that uh, it seems like we're learning a very powerful lesson here in this in this episode. And I'm very curious whether there are seven indeed. That would be very pleasant to figure that out and to find out that that were so and to verify that hypothesis. But that um, uh, I, I really want to think about it, especially in context of Harry being clearly the leader of this pack, uh, what it is that the locket sees in Ron and how it attempts to attack him and how that's sort of a manifestation of sort of the Voldemortian Luciferian darkness here. Because we've looked also at differing figures of darkness, the Belial luxurious nature of Slughorn, and we, you know, also like sort of like the primitive cruelty of the Chiants. Um, uh, Finrear Greyback seems to be an interesting manifestation of evil here. Um, and of course, all the manifestations yeah. of Voldemort. But I really want to think about oh, what it is exactly that Ron had to overcome to come back to these people, uh, to come back to the group, and uh, what it is that he has to overcome in himself in order to defeat this Horcrux, and to what ex extent uh, being good and defeating evil is going to involve these people having to understand or overcome things in themselves that Voldemort himself did not and could not. Well, on, on page 374 is when Ron really hesitates to um, destroy the Horcrux. And he says, that thing is bad for me. I can't handle it. It affects me worse than it affected you and Hermione. It made me think stuff, stuff I was thinking anyway, but it made everything worse. I can't explain it. And then I'd take it off. I'd get my head on straight again, and then I'd have to put the effing thing back on. I can't do it. And then it, it does seem like the voice of the Horcrux plays upon, like, some insecurities, which may be, like, the vice of pride, um, insecurities about, you know, basically coming down to being extraneous, being unlovable because of not being wanted like not being wanted not being needed by Hermione by his mother um by Harry like all of these like the mother son the the lover and the best friend none of them in the manifestation of the Horcrux want him right um I've, I've felt all along that like I don't know what Ron's purpose is aside from like funny sidekick Sometimes he's like a real, at least in the past, he's been, you know, a real jackass sometimes. But it does seem like it was necessary for him to find, I don't know, maybe within himself some kind of like value or self-worth, which is ironic because like of the three characters, that's the, that's the darkness that I personally wrestle with. So it's funny to me that I don't don't like his character but um but yeah what do you what else do you guys think yeah i i feel that too i mean i i see a an element of ron here um overcoming some sort of deep-seated in Right, um, to, to get the locket out in the first place. So I sort of wonder if, you know, whatever the potion was doing, it might be something like this, you know, um, probably in a more visceral way, of course, uh, as, as it's sort of taken into the body rather than just resting against the body like the locket does. But, but anyhow, that, you know, that sort of dredges up all of the worst things, right? And we can sort of imagine now that Dumbledore must have been thinking about whatever mysterious thing happened with his mother and sister and brother, and then maybe with Gellert Grindelwald, who was his friend and now is his you know, great enemy. Um, but, but anyway, this, this sort of process of like facing the worst parts of yourself, uh, like listening to them and being you know, seduced by them and then having to, you know, on the strength of um, somebody that you trust, uh, sort of coaching you, like you said, or, or some part of you that is like a little bit more sane, 
that sort of tells you what to do. And you, you finally, um, for whatever reason, are fi you finally are able to do it, to, to follow that, um, whether it's faith or whether it's uh, a sort of like a thing that, that just knows something that you haven't been able to, to see yet. Uh, I think, you know, that um, it's not, it, it's certainly not a, a particularly logical thing, but there's just enough logic in it, you know, that that uh, can sort of trick you. Um, so I, I find that kind of an interesting uh, aspect of this, like the, the bad side of logic, right? Being, being slayed by the, the good um, here and, and, and then <laughs> Hermione, like who sort of represents logic as well. She's, you know, of course, still very upset when they do get reunited, which I found kind of interesting too. You know, she, it, it makes Ron a little more sympathetic, actually, if anything, like when she's still so hard on him for, for what he did. But I guess that's just out of her affection for him ultimately. But yeah, it's an it's intense scene. Well, speaking of affection, the final thing that's thrown in Ron's face after being called second best and a boy instead of a girl for his dog, for his mother, and, you know, uh, Hermione and Harry being uh, happier without him. The, the last thing is, uh, well, on 377 of the American edition, paperback, who wouldn't prefer him? What woman would take you? You are nothing, nothing, nothing to him. Three times nothing crooned Riddle Hermione, and she stretched like a snake and entwined herself around Riddle Harry, wrapping him in a close embrace. Their lips met. And one little piece I'd never noticed before is after Harry yells, do it, Ron, Ron looked at him, and Harry thought he saw a trace of scarlet in his eyes. Ron, the sword flashed, plunged. Harry threw himself out of the way. There was a clang of metal and a long drawn out scream. Harry whirled around, slipping in the snow. Wand held ready to defend himself but there was nothing to fight. Monstrous versions of himself and Hermione were gone. Uh, <laughs> I just, I think it's very interesting that Harry had to throw himself out of the way of Ron. But I, my question is, why is it that the final thing that Ron has to overcome, seemingly the most difficult thing for him to overcome is the notion that Hermione might like him more than Harry? And possibly that they had cheated or that she had cheated cuckolded him do you mean, while he was do you gone. Mean that, do you mean that Hermione li might like Harry more than Ron? Yeah, or maybe even cheated on Ron while, he, while uh, he was gone. There seems to be an element of that in this, too. Yeah. I mean, well, they weren't together, so you can't really, I mean, rationally speaking, it's not technically cheating, but I think there's something like um more adult about that than about like not being liked by your mom like there's like a a, a your birth family and there's like the family that he would choose for himself and he's rejected i guess in the horcrux by both um i don't know there's something it, there seems to be something maybe more like I don't know, biological or uh, biological impulse that's that's being denied in the in the Horcrux versions of Hermione and Harry. Like he's being erased, right? If 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 Hermione doesn't like him and prefers Harry, then his he is erased, like his death, um, his legacy, right? Um, he doesn't perpetuate his line or whatever I don't know um I don't know uh, he's rendered ultimately ineffectual in that respect yeah I mean well like impotent right um right. which might be why he like takes the sword and <laughs> I don't know <laughs> it's an awkward thing to say but it's definitely there. I, I mean, you know, and it's Harry who's telling him over and over to stab it, stab it, stab it. It's like that, that you can't miss that. I think that's fair. And you know, and I see an interesting connection between him stabbing that and his broken wand and the having to stab of a literal snake rather than a simile 
made snake here because they twist like a snake. So there is a St. George element here. There is an embodiment of the hero here. There is a him doing something here that Harry did in book two that Harry cannot do here or is not, does not have the opportunity to do in the same way that Ron does. And so here they're displaced like, because in two, it was Ron's wand that was broken. It was his sister that needed rescuing by Harry. But in this case, it will, Harry's uh, wand is broken and it's uh, Ron who can bear this heroic sword that only heroes of Gryffindor true can bear to uh, you know, defeat this evil locket that is described in snake-like twining terms, uh, like Jafar at the end of Aladdin. The, and, and so he's embodying the hero, it's almost, you know, it's very interesting. It's almost like a democratic notion of heroism here, that even if you're not the top hero, the Harry Potter, the Jesus, that you still have a heroic role to play out and you need to face your own demons. Even if you are just a Ron, which perhaps we are all just Rons and Nevilles, uh, you know, not Harry's and Cedric Diggory's. Um, and that, you know, maybe if we do that, Maybe that is what is heroic. Maybe that is the most heroic thing that can be do, the, the anti-villainous thing to do. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I mean, I, I did want to look at that, that other snake scene a bit um, because it has uh, a yes. similar kind of, I mean, similar kind of uh, climactic feel to it. Uh, we even get like a very long, description uh, from Voldemort's perspective and, and some weird sort of mind melding thing is going on there where Harry is, you know, himself, but also Voldemort, uh, like seeing the actual um, scene that, uh, that happens just before the start of the first book of um, Voldemort losing his powers when he thinks he's about to finally secure them for good. Uh, so th there's some kind of weird process there of like seeing Voldemort's worst moment actually um, and him sort of having to replay that. Uh, there's also, you know, the literal snake, right? Like uh, Nagini, but she pops out of a uh, a, a weird, you know, dif distorted, I don't know what exactly, it's it's like the reanimated corpse of Matilda Bagshot. Uh, which can only speak parcel tongue now. It's 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 a bizarre, bizarre setup there. Um, and yeah, uh, that's the scene where, of course, Harry's wand does get broken. Uh, I guess Hermione kind of blames herself for it for some reason. I didn't really understand why she took it so hard. Um, but yeah, anyway, I, what what stood out to me about that scene, I guess, was just the um, the, the the aura of creepiness that uh, like in a horror movie, the characters sort of seem to be aware of, but yet to like play along with in a bizarre way. Like there's so much hope, I guess, that they're gonna finally learn something that they realize how dangerous and, and wrong it feels, but they still go in anyway. Like, I don't know, what are they, what are they up to here? Why does this play out the way it does? Yeah, I definitely wanna ask your perspective on that, Sarah. I would just say the one interesting thing to me is that that comes before the opening of the locket and the attacking of it. And it's almost as if this is the negative dark intuition or the following of the dark impulses that leads to the breaking of the intellect. And there needs to be sort of a redemption of the intuitive force, the use of it for good. Because I agree, it's like everything about this scene is screaming unnatural and wrong. But just like in the chapters to come, Harry seems to have this feeling of this is right. I am supposed to be being led on, regardless of the voice of reason, Hermione, who refuses even to come down there to where he is. Um, and, and I also just want to understand a little more about the mechanisms of this. Is she, Matilda Bagshot, an inferior? And, and she does only speak in parcel tongue. It's like that alone is like what's going on. Um, and... Uh, and then the snake just jumps out of her. What sort of snake is it? You know, what is the trick here? And uh, yeah, this is this is a very opaque and weird scene to me. So um, uh, maybe you can bring some light to the darkness, Sarah. Yeah, I mean, every time, I mean, the movie changes the scene a little bit. Um, uh, I think if she was only speaking parcel mouth, 
surely Hermione would have recognized that, right? That like, oh man, she's only like lifting in a sound in a sound that I don't understand, right? Um, and it's it's almost as though um, and I like what you said about like the negative side of intuition. I I thought less about the negative side of intuition because I I do think they go against their better judgment. Like, I don't think they go from the graveyard to her house, like, thinking that this is a good idea. Maybe that maybe that's not an accurate reading, or maybe I'm just reading too much into it. But I think they both want answers for questions um, that have been dogging them, and they want those answers so badly that they'll go anywhere for them, and they will... Um, they will again they will deny what i think is good intuition right like um uh on page 334 in the american edition it does say um uh you know hermione is not comfortable she's jumping she's gasping batilda doesn't even really speak she uh, nods and beckons and then they step and they follow her um, she's clearly fumbling she smelled bad like all of your senses would indicate this is not a good idea and they they actually deny their intuition they deny their senses right like the odor of old age of dust of unwashed clothes and stale food intensified as she unwound a moth-eaten black shawl, revealing a head of scant white hair through which the scalp showed clearly. Like, no need to, like, judge the elderly or whatever, but um, uh, there's enough, I think there are enough clues, and I think there's an indication, like, on the next page, Hermione even says, like, I'm not sure about this. And they think, listen, we can overpower her. Um, it's like they want an answer at the cost of their intuition. I don't, I don't think it is necessarily that their compass is leading them astray. I think that they're denying their compass and like maybe forcing an answer to a question um, as opposed to when he, when the silver doe arrives, he is, he is sitting, right? He is sitting and watching um, as opposed to like going out and looking um, I know in my experience, you rarely find the thing that you're looking for when you like just are so desperate for it. I don't know. Does that does that make sense? I'm not I'm not sure if I'm splitting a hair or making no, any makes, any sense. That makes perfect sense. I think I think what you're saying is that they they let their desire blind them to what they can clearly yeah. see. Uh, you know, they even literally have a strange feeling, which is intuition. Uh, telling them that there's, I think what intuition essentially is, is like a sense of a bunch of senses all together all at once, giving you manifold information that you can't articulate. And that's why you get like a bad feeling about something, um, I, which is hard to explain because it's like there's just so much telling you in that moment that this is a bad place. It's an ill-kept. She's creepy. She doesn't speak. If you were asking questions like Hermione would be, you'd very clearly see this is a stupid idea. But they want to find something. They want to like get away from the nihilism of this quest. They want to find some clue. And so I think you're totally right that they they like the lovers Francesca and Paolo um, let their desire uh, 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 get in the way of their better judgments. Um, and and they, then they do right. Like Harry sees the face. He sees the. It's almost like the the answer to one question yielded a series of like they were. They were looking maybe in the right place for the but for the wrong thing. Um, and so they when he like sees the book, right, he gets some kind of like, oh my, like this is exactly I I did we made the right call. Like look at that. Um <laughs> it turns out just terrible. Um it was the golden haired, merry faced thief, the young man, right? Um I don't know. What do you think, Wes? Oh yeah. What did yeah, you think the, of the scene? I the thief, yeah. So that's I think another example 
of this kind of things that you're not directly looking for appearing for you all right um the the other one being right yeah. that they they overhear the goblins talking to their classmate uh kind of randomly out there um another one being that ron sort of stumbles upon the secret of the deluminator like how it has this extra property that we weren't aware mm. of before um so yeah i think there's lots of examples of of things sort of working out um and that they don't trust that that is going to happen enough that they um sort of force the issue here and um in the in the graveyard itself um i know you wanted to kind of look at what was on those gravestones like maybe that was sort of what they were um maybe that would have been enough uh for them to to have found um on its own uh if they could sort of parse what was being said there um i know there's also like this this monument that uh reveals itself um to them as wizards to uh sort of like there's encouragement here essentially that seems to be what they're what they're kind of getting is like encouragement in two ways like from the living and then also like from a more religious standpoint because again we get a kind of intertextual thing going on where there's there's lines of uh, uh scripture essentially woven into the story here um so yeah i I kind of yeah I kind of think that there's there there is something to be found in Godric's Hollow but it's it's not quite what they um are are doing in the Tilda Bagshot's house. Right and Sarah you you were able to quote I think from memory what it was that was on James and Lily Potter's headstones and I thought that was very interesting because that that ties back nicely to the question you would pose um recently i think even last time about uh you know what what is the religious what is there a religion within the harry potter world or are there religious questions asked and there seems to be a nice synthesis between the primary and the secondary world here um yeah at the on their headstone i saw on page 328 it says the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death um, I mean, that's awfully Christian to me, but that's maybe because I was raised Christian, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I continue to believe that, um, that this series is chiefly about facing death. It's chiefly about mortality and like what the knowledge of it means among of among many many other things it's about I, mean, I do think that like and i think that's more the case starting in like book four than it is in book one even though the shadow of death kind of haunts or dogs harry at really from the beginning since he's an orphan but um you know what what do we do with the knowledge that things die not to mention the feeling that things die um and people die um and so the just the idea that the that this is what's inscribed on the tombstone of the two people that mean more to harry than anything right next to the tombstone the tombstones of the people who meant more to dumbledore than anything uh, it's hard to it's hard to look away from that, right? The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Um, and it's funny to me that um, that not funny. I'm sorry. It's interesting that Harry thinks that that's a a death eater idea. Um, like like destruction is some kind of consumptive activity. Like a the death eaters like consuming death right like being fueled by it and then Hermione says it doesn't mean defeating death in the way that death eaters mean it it means living beyond death living after death um and he's just at, after that he's just in these it, he I think he's like really coming 
to adult terms with the absence of his parents, right? Um, That's excellent. It, I, seems, it seems important. I can't quite put my finger on why, but it seems like that's important. Well, three things. That's at least important because he has to come to grips with the death of his other parental figures like Dumbledore and Sirius Black and all the protections, mm -hmm. he, he, if only mental protections that they provided. You know, um, I think, you know, I think a lot these days about the, um, the um, uh, terror management theorists and the idea that we tell ourselves story to protect ourselves from death anxiety and that the ultimate stories actually, in, in fact, try and expose us to death in order to prevent us from being anxious about it because it's clearly going to happen to all of us. And that that's sort of the ultimate realization you need to have as an adult, that you, like a figure like Jesus, will die which is what happened to that figure in that text. And you know, there's a, there's a resurrection involved, but I, I, I think I agree that what is in that text, the, the sort of one of the major themes there is also clearly here. And that we even see textual evidence for that in the fact that our antagonist, like Lucifer, must lie to himself and lie to his own nature in order to uh, try and, this is precisely what he will not face, death. That's why he wants to live forever. He never has to face that foe who is unconquerable, except mm -hmm. apparently is conquerable if you accept it as part of life um, uh, or something like that. That's something I think we need to parse out, but also just the idea that Dumbledore's Patronus itself, and he sort of, I've been arguing a figure for God the Father or the archetype of the king who always dies and comes back. Um, his, his Patronus is a phoenix, which is a symbol of a rejuvenating Re, uh, uh, or uh, a reanimating creature. And it, there's, there seems to be something of the mystery of the, you know, something of the Christian mystery and something about the nature of what stories are trying to convey in general in, in this fact, I think you're seeing that, um, you know, those who are dead are the ones who say they've conquered death. Whereas that one mm -hmm. who is still living is the one who is not. Um, and well, you know, and I think that's worth, uh, really thinking about. I, I, I haven't gotten farther than that, but I, I guess that goes to say that I agree. What do you think, Wes? Oh, definitely. I, well, just to layer onto that, well, the thing Hermione notices is that it's Christmas Eve, uh, since they weren't really paying attention to the passage of time, this hits them with the force of a revelation. Um, and she uh, conjures the the Christmas roses um, as like a you know a token to leave on the the grave. Um, they also I think a couple pages before that we get the the text on Dumbledore's sister and mom's grave is uh, where your treasure is there will your heart be also. Yeah, and, um, and that that's I mean just a great wonderful line uh for for the dumbledores to have right because so much about the horcruxes is like this distortion of that whole concept and so instead of you know a piece of your heart that has been forcibly cracked and 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 hidden away you have this this kind of sacrificial notion um implied there uh it, it comes in the context of you know the the notion that there is a heaven and that you are you know trying to to live in in the way that will permit you to be there someday uh, if you know if that is what you really treasure um, then in some sense you're already there I, I guess is one way to understand mm -hmm. that concept and so yeah I, I agree that there there is some interesting thing going on here where where, where life and death are, are being very much like reevaluated uh, on on a new sort of principle, and and what that principle is, I mean, is of course Dumbledore's great thing that he likes to talk about, which is love. Um, and we, I think that's another element of what's so, you know, messed up about Matilda Bagshot's whole sequence. There is, um, you know, this this should be a place maybe where they would have been like safe and welcomed in. Mm -hmm. and and given some kind of hospitality mm -hmm. and love uh mm -hmm. and maybe it, previously it would have been but but they're just they're too late you know it's it's been 
it's been twisted, it's been distorted, and uh, and I think that's what's so nice about when Ron comes back. Of course, right? He, he I think at least something that he provides in the story is a little bit more of that kind of you know good-natured kindness that that's so prized mm. in these books. Um, he's just like a basically good person, even though he he makes his share of mistakes. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I I think that that um, that aspect of it, you know, what's whatever's going on with Dumbledore's family being sort of driving this book um, is is quite interesting. It helps you sort of get through some of those those dull patches, <laughs> which are which are inevitable uh, in such a long story. Even Homer uh, uh, dozed off sometimes, right? They say. <laughs> and well, you just make me think of you make me think of Ron in sort of a Peter way um and that he sort hmm. of betrayed them but came back in his and it's like sort of first pope because he shows the vulnerability of not only people but of friendship which reminds us that it was godric's hollow where the parents were killed like even when it was supposed to be as safe as possible with dumbledore's magic helping them dumbledore's home just like in hogwarts death Death comes there, and not only death, betrayal leading to death, evil, malevolence. Peter Pettigrew, their friend, the Judas, he sold them out. So nowhere is safe in this world. And so even if it would have been a, a seemingly safe, wonderful place, there's also that extra layer that there's nowhere that's safe from death. The Chamber of Secrets exists in Hogwarts, and you know the Triwizard Cup takes its toll, and Quidditch takes its toll, we're told. Um, and, you know, not even in the magical world, in the most magical, trusting places with a super godlike entity trying to save you with magic, can you get away from the fact of death? And it's like, it even gets this far into our stories, even these older stories, like young adult children's stories. And, um, you know, it seems to be, like you were saying, like a starburst of uh, this, uh, this theme really seems to be coming together now. And um, I, I know you had talked about that happening earlier in the books, the third and the fourth books, um, Wes, or even as early as the second one where you start to see repetitions of patterns and things start to sort of come about um, that have been, uh, that have had layers built up in prior texts. But it's interesting to see that like, you know, one of the biggest themes that exists in the world ever, which is how to confront death and your own mortality as a human, uh, is is getting, you know, hit so hard here. Well, yeah, and and I mean, I think it 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 does make a bid for for much greater complexity once you have you know seven books layered on top of each other, and and I think it's it's really in this one that we start to see some um, explicit references. I mean, there's been implicit stuff all along, but but more you know overt stuff now to to the Christian. Uh, tradition that it's definitely jumping, uh, you know, in with Lewis and Tolkien as as great exponents of that through fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I think there's, you know, the the whole like sort of questioning of Dumbledore that we're meant to be doing here, um, I think, is actually pretty. Um, it's a pretty interesting critique. You know, it's it's not it doesn't go quite as far as like atheism. Or something like that, but but it does sort of like gesture towards you know that kind of doubt that you might go through, and um, how very uh, difficult that is on you and on your relationships and stuff. Mm. And uh, I mean, that's a kind of of death of God too, right? When when your when your faith mm. in the godlike figure you know is no longer tenable because of something you've learned or, or think you've you know seen through. Um, so. There, there's there is a lot of uh, general malaise <laughs> happening here too, uh, which is which is very like current and and relevant feeling. Um, so so I think that there's there's that element too, uh, you know, and the whole Grindelwald sub sub theme sub you know text here uh, certainly makes you think of um 20th century history it, it maps onto that pretty nicely right so uh yeah this this one is is way more uh complex and uh uh and and serious in some ways 
I think if I could just um, add a piece to this too, though, is that um, this malaise, I, I, I agree that Harry is in this, like this dark night of the soul, right? This like six month long yeah. dark night where he's, the things that he thought were certain and true are being rocked. And and the the he knows in the back of his mind that Rita Skeeter is not like the world's most reputable source or writer. And and he should now know that, you know, Batilda Bagshot may not be the world's most reputable source, but but there are these chinks in the armor of his faith and um you know, if this really, it, like, let's say this is analogous to, like, a more mature faith experience. Let's say, let's say as Harry grows up, the story takes on these hallmarks of a more mature or adult faith. Like, I'm very suspicious of certainty. And I think, I think certainty uh, is, dangerous especially when it's cloaked in religious terms like i know the voice of god and god spoke to me and god told me to do x y and z like more often than not that has yielded bloodshed rather than like birth beautiful beauty in the world <laughs> um and the people who i would consider to be strong are often people who are not certain right like I think of somebody like Thomas Merton um, or Mother Teresa, right? People who had like grave dark nights, like decades of dark nights. Um, I think it's really interesting that that the the memory, the full and complete memory um, of what happened to his parents hap is something Harry gets in chapter 17 right like in uh as he is in godric's hollow um and i'm sorry this this makes sense in my mind but it might not make sense the way i'm expressing it but like he finally get he's had these flashes of memory um for all seven books about like what happened to his mom what happened to his dad but he finally sees it like in a dream kind of like as though it's in the cinema, like he's seeing the entire scene of Voldemort coming to his house and killing his parents. And it's it's like he gets the answer, right? A kind of answer. It's like he gets the full picture when he is most weakened, when he is most wounded, when he is most um, stripped of physical and magical strength, right? His, his wand is broken. He is basically passed out, I guess, for a, a, quite some time. Um, he, he's been unconscious and moaning and shouting for a really long time. The Horcrux stuck to his chest in a way that like, it left a forever mark, right? Like, um, uh, I, I wonder, like, what, why now? Like, why does he get, um, why is it in this really dark place? Like, in this place where everything is up, he is upended, right? Where, like, his, his sense of, his friend is gone. His, his best friend, the person who's been with him since the train ride to Hogwarts the first time, he's gone. And Dumbledore is gone. And Dumbledore wasn't who he thought he was. Why is it in this time of, like, malaise, as you as you say, which I think is absolutely right, like, of uncertainty, of, of your compass not really being sure? Why is it that he gets the full picture? And, like, it's, it's a kind of illness he's never experienced before. I, I, I'm not – it's like – it's like the, there's something – I don't know. I think of the wounded healer person, like just the Henry Nowen idea, but um, that like the closest that you can get to knowledge of the self is in knowing your darkness. I don't, I don't know. I, I uh, think you were, I think you were sort of nailing it beforehand when you were saying 
it, it's in those moments when you're in the desert, when you're in the whale, when you're in the dark night of the soul, when you're uncertain, when you can't see the light, when you don't have your wand, when you don't have the deluminator in front of you, um, that you are most uncertain. And in those moments, you, you understand the world in a new way. You have to reconstitute a new understanding. It's like an, un, uh, an unconscious or an, an unwilling uh, taking on of Descartes' task in the meditations of having to reconstitute sort of your Weltanschauung or your way of looking at the world precisely because how you were looking at it failed you in some way. There was something, uh, some pillar, some, some foundational structure that was, uh, that was faulty. Some piece of the equation or early piece of the propositional logic was, fa was false. And so it all falls apart what was built on that. And so I think these are what the unions would call, and also the medieval alchemists, the grounds for a new understanding, the dissolutio in alchemical terms has happened, the dissolving. And so now he's in a dark place like water, a, a primordial place where he needs to be reconstituted or his, his perspective does. And, you know, that's also where the sun comes out of from the ancient Greeks, you know, the, the ocean and the east. And so it, it's like what Harry has to do is attain a new understanding without Dumbledore in the world, you know, find his new wand um, and uh, adapt to this new adult perspective um, as a, and give up the old childish one. And I, I think what you're seeing is, you know, the major transformation that this book is trying to, uh, you know, mimic or imitate, which is, you know, how to get, go from being a child who thinks that the world is going, or, you know, who thinks that they are essentially immortal to being a, a, an adult who has to recognize the reality of death. So we really end on some dark but pleasant notes. Yeah, well, tonight. we've got Xenophilus <laughs> Lovegood to look forward to for next time. <laughs> that will be good stuff. What is the next, what is the uh, outlook for the next uh, sort of plot arc here? Yeah, Sarah, were you the one who had first put forward the theory of the episodes? Last time, what do you what do you think is would be good for the next one? Um, for the next one, I'm 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 I wasn't thinking more episodic like um Wes you had suggested that there were maybe seven challenges. I think that's a that's a hypothesis that we need to come back to when we're done with this. And can we identify like seven climaxes uh, sure. and like seven seven victories? Because I think that that's that would be interesting if we could. I'm thinking more like just cinematically, like beginning, middle, and end of sections. Um, right. I think um, we did through, um, sorry, we did through 19, is that right? Yes. Uh -huh. um, my sense is 20 through 25. Cool. Um, there is a lot that happens in those sections and that sort of um it, that like spans the end of the first movie for y'all who are listening um that spans like the end of the first movie and the beginning of the second movie if we wanted to bookend it where the the movie producers did we would go chapter 20 through 23 but I think 20 through 25 is probably good. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Sounds good to me. Um, let me look at the, at the chapter, at like the page breakdown here. It's about 120 um, pages. It's a good summer reading. That, well, that's also more or less what we've been doing. Right. right? It's about 100, 120. So... Um, yeah, I think 20 to 20 to 20 through 25 is 130 or so. All right. And well, for those who are listening on Wednesday, an added treat, um, we'll get into seemingly what would be a more serious work, but perhaps not given what we've been going through here. And we're going to start our Shakespeare project and our long slog through that.
And uh, so with a comedy of errors. So I'm looking forward to doing that with you two in a couple of days. That yeah, for sure. Stuff. It's going to be very fun because I've been watching a lot of these plays in advance and I, I saw a play as you like it this weekend and also all 37 plays. And I know there's debate about 37 to 39 um, on Sunday. I'm, I'm sort of individually Shakespeare out. I can't wait to talk about it. I don't want to make one of those nasty Miltonic references where I talk about being milked, but geez, it'll be good to finally get to talk about some of this stuff after so much reading. I will be excited to hear how, what you thought of the performance. Yeah, absolutely. All right, cool. Well, All right. cheers y'all. Cheers y'all. For me, IPA tonight. Ooh, I'm drinking some weak tea over here. Very Still nice. Refreshing. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I am going to wait until midnight and then open up a bottle of champagne because it's my birthday tomorrow. Happy birthday! Expect an owl. Yeah. Yep. Have a great one. All, All right. right. I'll talk Maybe. to you on Wednesday. Talk to Take you on Wednesday. Take it easy, y'all. Cheers. Cheers. Bye.